delighted that you have decided to um, join us today and I'm happy to have Rebecca Ashley and Andy Davis from our church and today I'm going to be drinking water from this beautiful cup that I picked up very recently from a quaint little shop up in uh, Terrytown. So ladies welcome thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. And Andy and Rebecca are going to be having some conversations about things that are important to them. And so I'm going to just let them get at it. So All right. feel free. Um, I think we were gonna introduce ourselves. Andy, do you wanna tell them who you are? Um, yeah, hi everyone. I'm Andy Davis. I'm a member of the church. Um, I've been a member of Park Avenue now for, it's so hard, I, I wanna say nine years. Um, as hard as that is to believe, I mean, time is just really flying. Um, and I've been involved in um, the outreach committee. Um, I am sort of jack of all trades. I do whatever, whatever I am voluntold to do, like <laughs> Pastor <laughs> Kathy, and, and, and more as well. And I really feel like it's a beautiful church family. And um, one that I, I lean into at times like this more than ever. Today, I'm going to be drinking from a mug from my country, Barbados, um, where I'm from. And, and I'm proud to say I'm not the only Barbadian member of the church. That's how, how diverse we are. But I'm going to be drinking water because even though it's five o'clock somewhere, it's only, uh, it's not five o'clock here yet. <laughs> well, I'm, you, Rebecca? I'm fully caffeinated, so I'm going to be drinking water as well out of my PAUMC mug nice. our anniversary our 180th anniversary uh, i'm the co-leader co-lay leader of the church and i've been a member for i think five years when i when i try to figure out how long it's been i think back to how amelia my youngest was still napping when <laughs> elliot and i first came and did our our trial and liz came and swept us off our feet and, and then we knew our, we had found our home so I remember she was still napping. I think it's been five years, um, but it's just, it's an amazing place. And I can't tell you, Pastor Kathy, how much having this connection to you and to our members in this uncertain time has meant. It's been a real balm for our family. And so I want to thank you before we start officially for all that you've done, all that you've learned in this new technology <laughs> um, to, to keep us together, to keep us, and, and to be innovating the way we are talking and having a conversation. Um, Andy, I, I want to start uh, by asking you how you are. And I think that's a question I'd like to encourage all of our white friends to be asking our friends of color right now. How are you? Um, I appreciate it. Um, I am uh, not great. Um, I, I, I have been um, like everyone else that I know of any race, um, not sleeping well. Um, I've been glued to social media and to the news. Uh, I've been just watching developments unfold. I happen to be at the moment um, with my parents uh, who are both um, uh, older and in, in, each, in various ways immunocompromised. 
So unfortunately, I can't be participating in the marches now with the with you know COVID nineteen pandemic uh, ongoing. But I feel as if I'm there because I I rarely let a moment go by um, that I'm not just really attentive to it, and I find myself vacillating between. Um, a sense of hope and optimism when I see this groundswell of support that's taking place around the world. And at the same time, almost being afraid to hope that whatever leap we take forward is gonna be far enough because there's just, so much, there's just so much work to do. And when I look at examples like the Arab Spring where you know, we thought, right, this is it, you know, the, the world's gonna turn in that part of the world. It did for some. I mean, it, there, there was definitely progress, but not enough. And ironically enough, in the, in the epicenter of that movement in Egypt, there probably was the least amount, you can argue, of, of, of change. So I don't know what all this means for us. I, I do know that there's no other way forward, but how far we'll get is, is, remains to be seen. But Rebecca, I want to ask you, because, you know, one of the things that, that's, that I think is becoming clearer is that the, the locus of this struggle is really among white people and not black people at this stage. How are you doing and how are you feeling? I, I feel like in these last two weeks, I have been shaken awake in a way that I never have before. I think mm. I, I've always considered myself an ally. I've done diversity work for a lot of years, but I, I don't think I really got it until just these last couple of weeks, like really got it. And I still, I still know that I, I don't really get it. Um, so I'm sort of vacillating in this place of, of helplessness and yet knowing that unless I figure out how to be helpful and rouse my white brothers and sisters to be advocates and, and uh, accomplices in this fight that nothing will ever change. And so that's, that's, it's a big, a big feeling, you know, and I, I know that, um, I know that to be black in America has always carried a, a huge weight. And I, I don't, I think I'm just starting to feel the tiniest bit of what that might be, right? Like the tiniest starting to see it and really starting to try to understand it. So, mm. um, I feel, I feel hopeful because I, I always am hopeful. Um, and I know I have a lot of educating of myself to do. And, and when I think about education, it always makes me feel hopeful because when we open people's eyes to things, how can you not change? How can you not, um, how can you not push yourself forward? So so yeah, I feel like a lot of work to do. That's how I feel right now. A lot of work. <laughs> I think that's right. And I think that's, I think that's where it begins is, is that awareness and yeah. the awareness of, of, how, of how much we do have to do. Um, I, you know, I'm part of this um, WhatsApp group. Now with the pandemic, everyone's communicating virtually. Mm -hmm. And I'm part of this WhatsApp group from um, friends who, uh, a group of classmates from high school, um, black and white. And um, one white classmate reached out to the group and said, you know, how is everyone feeling, you know, about all of this? How do you, how do you feel as a, as a black person experiencing this? And, um, you know, people gave responses. And then I said, well, how are the white classmates feeling? You know, how are you processing this? Because this is your, 
this is your story too. And no one reached, reached, no one came forward. It was like, it's just, it's for some people, I think it's still a bridge too far. Right. Um, but between the, the, the survivors and the objects of that oppression and the people for whom it's a bridge too far are the ones in the middle who are the ones who are waking up, as you say, and who are realizing what needs to be done. And those are the ones who can get, who can build that bridge right. I think, and get to the people who are not ready yet to, 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 to really confront the magnitude of this, this, this like scar in human history. Um, and even beyond that, to the people who are aware of it and just don't want to see it change, or we're not even talking about those people. We're talking about the ones who are just sort of operating in a sense of willful ignorance. And, right. um, you know, when, when you look at the, at the marches around the world and you see just the demographics, the composition, it does make you feel hopeful. Some of those people are just waking up right. today. You right. know, some people have been on the front lines for a long time and some people are just realizing how bad things really are. And, 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 and I think it's important to just, I don't know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but to realize how, how much that has seeded a sense of comfort, a sense of, of, of normalcy. Like this is just sort of sad, but the way it is. And, um, and I, think, I think people have to realize and get comfortable with the fact that there's a lot of discomfort coming. Right. Right. I remember one of the earliest ahas I had in, in thinking about my whiteness was how so so many of us view the world in relation to us, right? That we're the center, we're the neutral, and everything else is the other, and everything else is um, is is distant, is other. And that was a, a big aha, but then what to do with that, right? Um, so I was, you know, I was, when I was first thinking about my place in all of this, I always think about how do I, how I can approach things as an educator and a parent, right? And yeah. um, one of the places I feel I can make a big difference is is with my own children and with the children I'm teaching. And, you know, I teach at a, I teach at a school with a lot of wealth and, and power and, you know, um, and to be able to awake people who might grow up to be in positions of power, right? Like, that's, that's a big responsibility and a big job. And I, um, I take it really seriously. One of the things I um, have been trying to tell people to do one small step, because I, yeah, I have a lot of white friends that are just stumped. They say, I don't know what to do. I feel so bad and I don't know what to do. And, um, you know, I think the short answer is, is to read, right? To start start educating yourself on what it means to be an anti-racist, right? That's like a new, a new term for a lot of us, right? Like we knew when we, we always say we're not racist, but you are actually, if you participate in systems of government that keep other people down. Right. So we have to admit like, okay, I've, I've participated in that and that's, I've benefited in so many ways that, you know, other people don't, um, but, you know, to do simple things like looking at your child's bookshelf and, and seeing if there are diverse authors represented, if the pictures represent windows and mirrors that children can see other people other than themselves in. Um, I actually pulled these off the shelf right before. Oh, let's see. Um, 
So like, just for instance, you know, we, we, we have things on our shelf that are like Rosie Revere engineer, like about being a girl and, and being a scientist, right? Like, so if I'm, I'm learning a lot about intersectionality right now, right? So if you're a girl, you have one form of oppression on you, but if you're a girl of color, those are two forms of oppression that you endure every day, right? So we also have like the Ada Twist scientist, right? So if you're going to have one, you got to have the other, right? You've got you've to make sure you are putting things in front of your children that represent more than just the kind of children you have, right? Um, I brought a whole stack, but I won't get into that. But, you know, I think a short answer is to take an assessment of um the media and the literature that not only you intake but that your children intake right like am i only watching shows that reflect my experience or am i willing to open my eyes to others right um and those are just baby steps like the first steps but i think those are i think they're fundamental though fundamental right because it changes your worldview it changes what you see when you look at somebody who doesn't look like you what do you what is it that you're focused on what are your sort of unconscious biases all those things need to be unpacked right because that's how you get to be i think a person who's totally well-intentioned someone who even has friends of color and still don't quite get how how uh entrenched it is right. so no i think it's i think it's great right you're, you're doing the work. Um, can I ask you what? Are, like, what are some of the things that you've been reading? Like, what do you recommend for your white friends who feel at sea with all of this and want to know what to do? Well, I just ordered How to Be an Anti-Racist. I haven't read it, mm. so that's one. Um, I read Blind Spot a couple of years ago, which I think is a really practical book to read because there's actual tests inside. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you, if you know that book, but um, you take these rapid fire assessments of your, of, of your assumptions and you have to take it, the tests as fast as you can. And you're sort of, you know, your eyes are sort of open to what your assumptions are and hidden biases are. Um, so that's, I think that's a, a good one because I think it might highlight things that you didn't really realize about yourself things yeah. you assume um, about other races or um, cultures that you may not even have known you had a blind spot to. That's why it's called blind spot. Yeah. Um, I think a, a really classic one is Unpacking the White Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. Um, I actually forwarded that to our small group today. Mm-hmm. That, was the, that was the very first article that I read that made me go, oh, oh. <laughs> And that was, that was years ago, but listen, I haven't, I haven't moved further from that in some, I haven't moved much further from that, right? Like, okay, I've acknowledged I have this privilege and this set of, of, of things that I carry on my back that open doors for me that don't open doors for other people. But, um, so those are, those are two that I could recommend as like 101, right? And White Fragility is next on my list. I've read one chapter in that called White Women's Tears. Um, it's a pretty powerful chapter. I read the whole thing, but um, somebody pointed me to that chapter uh, last year when there was something tough going on at, in a class that I was teaching. And it, it, it was a light bulb for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, how we don't get to, we don't get to be offended or cry or, you know, we have to sit in the, in the discomfort and be okay with it. Right. Um, those are some starting points. Do you have, do you have, no, I, I, would, I was going to recommend right for Julie, Pastor Kathy, do you, do you have some? I think that's, those are good starting places. And I'm really excited to hear about the children's books. Yeah. Oh, there's another one I love. Yeah. Yeah. This is called The Day You Begin. Yeah. I bought this for, um, I buy a book for my kids' classroom every year on the first day of school. Um, and we, you know, one of my very best friends is an amazing children's librarian. And she's the one who sort of taught me to, to assess your book collection. Like, think about the eight identifiers. Do I have women represented? Do I have people of color represented? Do I have um, marginalized people represented? Do I have disabled people represented? You know, are all of my authors white? Are all of my authors men, right? So just simple assessment, like what's on my bookshelf? And am I representing, actually, Elliot's books are here. Hold on. <laughs> so, you know, we have, we have the role doll, the classic role doll and like Beverly clearly, right? Classic white books that have always been in white classrooms for decades, right? But, and we have the Teddy Mars, white kid. My son can identify with him, but we also have, this is actually his favorite, Kwame Alexander. He's, obs Elliot's obsessed with this series. Um, and it's actually about a friendship between a white boy and a black boy. And well, it's, comp it's more complicated than that, but, um, and Pele, king of soccer, right? I'm representing more than just who Elliot is like on his bookshelf, right? So um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, like this is like 101, but that's like a first step that parents could take and that you could, that I think we, we should take as, as white folk. Like, am I avoiding that movie, you know, that might make me uncomfortable because it's going to talk about people who've been oppressed and ugh, I'd rather just watch a romantic comedy, right? Like, like that we have to lean in and, and do things that are uncomfortable. And I'm giving myself that own my, that advice as well. You know, I'm giving myself my own advice. I, you know, it's it's not about patting yourself on the back. It's about just acknowledging that that there's work to be done, and then doing the work. I I, I think that's that's really important. Um, you know, we have a very diverse congregation, as as I'm proud to to to, to say, and I'm always bragging about it. Um, in, in my own work, I, I, I work in global development and I travel a lot for work. And one of the things that um, has been encouraging and at the same time, like, sort of appalling to see is I at least am convinced that race relations and the, the, the discourse around race relations in the United States is really sort of the frontier. Like that's in the sense that, that, that we are further along in the U.S., than anyone else. And you go to Europe and you've got lots of people sort of questioning their problems, saying, oh my goodness, why are they always obsessed with black and white? We own them, we don't see color here. Absolutely not true. You know, you see so many cases where people think that the, you, you hear people say, oh, Americans, African-Americans are just overly obsessed with race. They play the race card. They see race in everything. Usually when you, you dig not even too deeply in a lot of these societies, what you discover is that they've not even begun to do the work that people are so marginalized that they don't even have a voice. So you're not even here right? on the board. Yeah. 
And here in this country, as horrible as it is to see these violent clashes and, uh, and just all of the turbulence, the opposite of that is not to go back to the way it was. It's not this sort of false, Isaiah said it very well in the sermon, it's, it's, not, it's not what we, we're thinking of as a sense of peace, that normalcy, because it's quiet and you can hear the birds singing, therefore everything's okay. What's underneath that? What's being stifled and silenced? That can never go back in the box again. And it's, it's, it's surreal to, to witness it and be part of it. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, we're all uncomfortable. Some of us have been uncomfortable for a, for a long time. Some of us are just realizing how uncomfortable it is, but it's uncomfortable for all of us. But this is the frontier. This is the work. This is, I think, how things move forward. And so even though, you know, I'm an immigrant like any other, and I have my issues with, you know, U.S. imperialism that I'm always sort of, you know, going on about, but whenever I hear someone else say, oh, this obsession with race, race, and, you know, just don't see color, don't see color. That's not the answer. You have to see color. Right because it, it impacts every, and this is not just true in America, it's true in Canada, it's true in the UK, it's true in Denmark, where they think that they're so beyond this. It's, it's, I don't know if you want to put this in, Pastor Kathy, but I'm just saying, like, it, it's true around the world. And even in, in countries that are, um, where there's one race, there's, there's a colorism, right? And, the, and not even to talk about sort of the, the, the link between colorism and class. There's so, you can unpack this. Will you define colorism? Yes. Yeah, so colorism is um, I don't know that term. Yeah. So colorism by colorism, I mean um, placing a value judgment on one's complexion. Sometimes it's complexion. So often in the context of black people, it's it's combined with hair texture, um, facial features, sort of more Negroid features tend to be less valued tr traditionally, um, and all of those things aren't just personal preferences, they're reinforced by um, all of the cultural cues, some of which you've been talking about, Rebecca. Right. And, um, and then they have very real consequences economically, socially, politically, et cetera. And even in countries that are places that are, or societies, environments that are all of one race, nominally, you'll see these gradations. You know, where are the lighter skinned people? Where are the darker skinned people? Who's in the wealthier classes? How did they get there? How many generations are they away from, from darker skin? All of these things have to be unpacked. And so here we are today, you know, with marches and protests and people who are not backing down. And it just sounds like a complete maelstrom. But guess what? This is, this is the work, right? Like this is the this is this is sort of that volcanic eruption that then leads to super fertile beautiful soil right but there's no other way to get it right i know i i i'm thinking about colin kaepernick and how that movement to peacefully do so in very very public forums that was frowned upon as well right like there's no there doesn't seem to be any form of protest that's okay right so yeah. so the buildings are burning that's why right because yeah. no, no other form seems to have awakened people. Yeah. I've often wondered what, what's the benefit in clinging to, to, to that hate, that status quo? What are people so afraid of? It must mean that somewhere deep down in people's psyche, they realize that as unfortunate as it is that some people are, are, are oppressed in, in, in the system we currently have, that, you know, it's sort of working for me, right? Like it's, 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 I, I don't want to tamper with this because what comes next? But then there seems to be another group of people whose very sense of identity 
depends on having someone underfoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand that. I, right. I don't. Yeah. I think, I think <coughs> there are, there are many that, that still don't even see how they benefit. I, I think are still blind even to what white privilege is. Yeah. Right. So, privilege people think, well, I'm not wealthy. Uh, how can I be privileged? <laughs> right. Exactly. Like I, you know, I, I think to myself, well, you know, I am paying, I'm still paying off um, graduate loans. Right. But my parents paid for my undergrad. Right. So I was in a position that I could, take on some debt because my parents were able to pay for me to go to college. That's a privilege that yeah. not a lot of people have, right? Yeah. They paid for my undergrad. I graduated debt free and all of those, those things compound how you're able to acquire um, wealth over generations, right? Like if you had people who paid for you to go to college, you were then able to get ahead quicker. And you know, all of the, the those small, th- they're not small, but the, I think there are so many people that are not even awake to, to that, right. To to how they have gotten to where they are on the backs of other people. Right. And it also, I think maybe um, doesn't help that there's such a strong sort of individualist streak in this country, not even streak. I mean, it just kind of runs through the whole society. Like we're these rugged individuals. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps which was always a myth and it, and it, it's, it's, it continues to be a myth, but it's sort it's very powerful in the American psyche. Like, you know, you can just come here and anybody, hard, can. anyone can make it. And that's why we celebrate all these unicorns, right? Like this kid didn't go to college, but by dint of their own efforts, they made it. You know, they, everyone talks about, for example, Bill Gates and forgetting that Bill Gates was a, you know, a comfortable upper middle class kid. Um, and, and I think that there, there's this aversion to um, a sense of, of the collective, that we actually are really stronger together. There, that seems, that seems to, to sort of reek of, I don't know, socialism or whatever it is that people are so afraid of. You know that there's so many people who talk about socialism as if it's the worst thing on earth, but can't quite define either it or their problem with it. Right. <laughs> they just have been taught that it's they, bad. Is bad. Which is, which is another reason I think that je- hopefully that sort of departs with the generation that lived under like the so-called Red Scare. Um, but I draw a line between that and what we're seeing today, which is this, this, this sense that, you know, if somebody uh, faces police brutality, you know, immediately we start looking for these individualist responses. It's not systemic. It's, well, you know, they must have been struggling or they must have been resisting arrest or... Or if they'd only complied, you hear that a lot, if, if only they'd complied. And this absolute unwillingness to see the systemic problems like, that as a collective we could all benefit why from. Why they were led to maybe oh. yeah. commit the crime in the first place, right? Exactly, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I had a, um, a, a reckoning with someone who had hung an All Lives Matter sign on their door. And I hear that a lot in, in the white community. I grew up in rural Missouri, um, and a lot of, a lot of um, Blue Lives Matter things coming through the posts in my or in my social media feeds, and All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. And I don't understand what this fuss is about, and um, you know, this idea that All Lives Matter. No one ever disputed that, right? And and you've probably seen the meme that. Um, 
you know, we said Black Lives Matter, you say all lives matter, we never said all lives don't matter, but right now we need your help with recognizing that Black Lives Matter, right? So um, yesterday I was walking by a, a store on my street that had that sign. And this is like one example of white people, what can you do? Here's one example. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back for this, but I don't know that I would have done this a year ago. I don't know that I would have done this six months ago, but um, I walked by the business and Bobby, who as an African-American man who we've been friends for 15 years, because he's at this, at the shop opening up every day. We see him on the street. We talk, Bobby is sweeping up and somebody, uh, the person who owns the shop is sitting outside watching him. And I stopped and I said, you know, that sign right there really, really disrespects your employee, Bobby here. And talked a lot about why it's not okay. And he said, and I think he defended himself by saying, well, Bobby put that up and, you know, Bobby might've had to put that up to keep his right. job, right? Exactly. Bobby, Bobby, you know. To, to, to assuage you, to assuage them that right. it's not gonna be a problem, yeah. Right, so I, you know, it, it was down as of last night. So, you know, one, oh. one, one small victory, but you know, where we can intervene, where, where we see these injustices, right? Or like in a hiring practice, um, are we actively recruiting people of color in a hiring practice? Like th th these are small ways that I know I've been able to have a voice in, in this last year. Um, but I think to continually look for those opportunities to speak up and, and find ways that, you know, it's, it's like you've got to put a lens on you've got to put this lens of justice on now and you've got to look at the world through that lens now. And there's no other lens through which you can look at the world. You have to look at the world through that lens. Now I was even thinking like, I think my entire curriculum in the fall has to be through that lens. There's, oh, yeah. I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of revising of curriculum. There's no way forward <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. yeah. There's just not. Yeah. Um, have you been reaching out to um, your black friends to, to, to see how they're doing? Yeah, um, I'm going to be, uh, here, here's where I'm going to be really transparent, Andy. I don't have a ton of black friends. Hmm. And that might be part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I have my church friends. Um, I grew up in an all-white town. And I went to college in an almost all white town, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and those are sort of the people you form as a base, right? The people that you meet when you're 15 to 25, right? Um, so that's a place that I have work to do. I remember asking my, um, somebody at my, a psychologist that came to talk to parents and I remember saying, I want my kids to have more black, like more, a more diverse friend base. And they said, well, have you looked at your friend base? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but do your kids have a more diverse friend base than, than, than they you? They do, because they grew up in New York City. They do. Yeah. They do. This was when they were like three and four. And I'm getting the list of the, you know, three or four kids they wanted to invite for their birthday party. And I'm like, they're all white. No, it's okay. <laughs> are you sure? That, are you sure you want to invite? You know, um, so, but but that was like a oh yeah. We don't have a ton of black friends. You know, we have 
to jump in here. Yeah, please. Because one of the things that I really love most, and Andy mentioned it earlier, about our church is its diversity, mm -hmm. right? And it's something that, you know, I've heard people say we've always been diverse, right? And uh, certainly that is, in my opinion, we're far more diverse than even most churches that I know in the city, let alone other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, I think there's genuine love in our community, right? But there are aspects of our being that we can't fully understand unless we have conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm loving about this conversation here. And what I loved about the conversation with Eric and Isaiah last week, right? And these are conversations that we never would have had. Right. And, 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 and we need to know your history, right? And you need to know our history. And so I want to say bravo to, to the two of you, but also, um, you know, have coffee, you know, like this with any, anybody. And we can all do it, right? And if you want to know something, the book is great. The books are wonderful. But it's not like knowing Kathy, knowing where I grew up, knowing some of the things that my mother taught me that may have been different from what your mother taught you about yourself, right? right. Um, knowing what my sons go through, right? Mm -hmm. Like most people know that I have sons because I love them to death and they're mama's boys and I talk about them all the time. <laughs> but uh, to hear a story or two about their struggles through all of this. And I think we begin to see each other very differently and we hear each other's stories. Yeah. And I think that's something we can all do. And let us not shy away. You know, right. there, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of mistrust, right? There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, this sort of uh, notion of assimilating because Black people assimilate, right? We, we learn how to be polite and nice and articulate and all those things, which we are, but we, but we know how to do that. Just like Bobby, the, the right. gentleman you mentioned, but let's have another kind of conversation. Let's take that risk to get to know one another because, you know, we, 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 we have a wonderful church and we go down to coffee hour and we say, hello, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Or we go out the door and we never have conversations. Mm -hmm. Right, and I'm guilty of that. I think we all are because that's just the way our culture uh, has told us to be. Um, but we can have these hard conversations and I think we are really fortunate to have the gift of one another right in our community. Right. Right. Yeah. In our small group yesterday, we were talking about trying to assemble small groups like this with um, a diverse group, right? Yeah. Uh, in order to get to know each other. I mean, our, our small group has gotten so intimately acquainted in this, which is a gift of COVID-19. I will, I will thank COVID-19 for that. Um, and it would be really lovely if these kinds of conversations continued in constructed groups, right? Where we can get to know each other better. Yeah. Andy, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, about your schooling experience and upbringing and, and how you navigated. I know I, I heard Eric talk a lot about assimilating last week in the talk, and I'd just love to know a little bit about your experience. Yeah, this is something that um, 
thanks thanks for asking but it, it's it's something that i i uh i always have to preface by saying the seminal thing i think for for me and for, for my family is that we spent our formative years in a, in a black country where we were the majority. Yeah. And I think that that for lots of uh, black immigrants to the U S um, doesn't insulate you at all. That's not what I'm suggesting. It's, it's just that, that it, 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 you, you sort of come into it with a very different mindset. So for example, if somebody says something, you know, mean to you, race isn't the primary, necessarily the first axis on which you evaluate that statement because back home, somebody could just be a jerk <laughs> or be having a bad day or be your enemy, but, it, but it's not necessarily based on the axis of race. And this is, right. this is whether or not you're dealing with a local white person in the case of Barbados or, or, or not. So you don't, you see yourself not as a black person because you're not born into an innately hostile an overtly hostile environment. And I just wanna make really clear, this is not to distance or distinguish myself. It's just to say that that, that little sort of toggle in the, in the sort of in your, in your psychic DNA right. really makes a, a big difference because you don't necessarily see things in, in the same way. Um, right. I came here in time for ninth grade. Um, I was very snobbish. I just thought I was far better educated than everyone around me. And so I, I was in this diverse school, you know, sort of, you know, me and making friends, meeting people, but very much with my nose in the air, like, oh, are you just learning that? Like, we did that, you know, back in such and such when I was in Barbados. I, I had that mentality, very snobbish mentality. But that snobbishness, I think, insulated me from a lot of stuff because, first of all, I was probably too obnoxious for anyone to want to hang out with me. <laughs> <laughs> but also I didn't even see it if somebody was trying to insult me it's like what what are you talking about like you know I was speaking Latin when I was eight but you can't tell me nothing like I <laughs> a very very high opinion of myself yeah. and then I went to Howard University because the reason we came to the U.S. in the first place is that my dad got a job teaching at Howard so I went to Howard and was just sort of immersed in a, in a beautiful sort of you know sort of gilded black experience um, again, not unaware of, of, of the world around me, but just not as somewhat insulated from it than I would have been had I gone to Syracuse, which was my other uh, option. I, I might have had a different experience there. Um, and uh, then I went to law school at Harvard, and that was where really I think the scales fell from my eyes. Again, not that I was unaware of, of um, racial animus at all, but that's when I really saw sort of the pinnacle of a truly uh, entitled and elite and privileged in the way that people who don't realize they have privilege, privileged upbringing. I mean, when, 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 when the average, I think, white American says, I'm not privileged because I didn't grow up wealthy. These were kids who were privileged in the sense that they mean they were wealthy and privileged and had everything. Um, it had never known for, for, for a day's want or insecurity or anything in, in their lives. And those people, um, there were lots of them who were just perfectly lovely, well-adjusted. And then there were those who um, were very invested in, in, in their sense of superiority more than their sense of humanity. Mm. Um, and so it was deeply disturbing that uh, somebody like an Obama could exist. 
because mm-hmm. black people are there to authenticate your um, your um, your sense of magnanimity, right? Like you're there to black people are there to be helped by you and to be served by you, and, and Obama can be your friend because that shows that you are you know you're an enlightened liberal person because you have this black friend. But if he's actually better than you, smarter, more talented, more informed that's a threat that's not just oh here's another guy i can learn from and i think that's where i started to see it not in, and again i want to make clear i'm not comparing myself to obama or saying that i was the the, the 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 person who put these people on edge but i saw more and more examples of that where this is not a passive thing people are deeply invested in making sure that uh their sense of superiority whether that's in terms of race or class or gender or you know, national origin um, is absolutely um, left sacrosanct and never ever threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it only got worse when I got into the workplace. Um, I was trying to think of an example of like some sort of overt, I mean, I, you know, you hear these stories of like, you know, you, you go into the, the conference room, didn't um, meet with your client and they ask somebody asks you for coffee or tells you to like, you know, go get a tray of food or something like that. I, that sort of thing didn't really happen, just ha- happened not to happen to me, or if it did, I, I, was, I was oblivious to it, but I, I, I don't think I've, I've had, nothing comes to mind, let's put it that way. So it's possible that this just sort of glanced off my back, but, but nothing egregious like that comes to mind. There was one time though, um, but, th- but there could have been various reasons for this. There was a partner that I was working for early in my career, um, who, you know, would have me come in his office for any reason whatsoever. And, you know, it's, oh, come in here and, oh, I dropped that on the floor. Come in here and such and such. And, you know, and every time I went in, he'd, he'd, he'd you know, pay some compliment that sort of skirted the bounds of propriety. And there was one day when he came in, when he asked me to come in, and, I, and he, his office was far away. And I, you know, ran his office to see what, you know, what, what is it now? And he said, oh, um, these files on my desk, they're all sort of, you know, in disorder. Could you arrange them? And I said at the top of my voice, this is, he had an assistant right outside. I said, are you asking me to straighten the files on your desk? And he goes, I, 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 I mean, I just couldn't find, you know, I just couldn't find something. I said, oh, I, I, let me help you with that. And I called his assistant and said, he seems to have lost the file he's looking for. Could, could you help him, please? And that was the end of that. Now, that could have been a function of gender. Yeah, could have been a function of race. Like yeah. going back to the idea of intersectionality, it could have been the fact that the year that I joined that firm, I was one of three people, three black people that they hired in the class. And, and before us and after us, well, before us, there were no other black people at that firm. So clearly somebody hit them with a threat or, you know, they were under some sort of scrutiny. All of a sudden they hired three black lawyers. And I spent about a year there. And by the time I left, I think I was the last one of us. No, only one person, one, only one of us remained. So one left before me and then, and then I left. Um, well, there's something okay. about building an infrastructure to support people of color exactly. in an organization, right? Oh, and, right? And you don't have that infrastructure in place. Yeah. It's not, yeah. It's, you can't just hire people of color and expect them to survive. And but Yeah, it's, it's window dressing. Right, it's, it's, right. It's, it's window dressing. To do the work. Capital, the, you know, Kathy, Pastor Kathy always says the church, capital C. I'm saying we need to do the work, capital W. Exactly. <laughs> you need to be willing to do that. Like, you can't be too cynical. And actually, it's one of the things that I don't quite know what to make of all of these, like, you know, 
corporations that are now saying Black Lives Matter. And I mean, it's wonderful if that sentiment is backed up with actual real work and evidence. It's, it's a start, but is it the end? I mean, for some right. of them- Or is I, it performative, right? Or is it, it, it could be totally performative and we don't, we don't know. And, and, that's, and you're right. I mean, the performance feels good in the moment. You know, every, we're, we're all just so thirsty for some sort of, of, of resolution or ease from all of this. So when we see like, you know, a, a cop kneeling with the protesters, it feels good. When we see, you know, a big corporation say Black Lives Matter and put it on their website and put banners up, it feels great. What's after that is the capital W work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think I have a lot to learn from you, Andy. I hope you'll have coffee with me. I'd love to have coffee with you. <laughs> I'll never forget the first time when you when you spoke. Well, it probably wasn't the first time you spoke, but you spoke last year and talked about your faith. And I wrote it down in a river, and oh, just you're like the most eloquent. Oh well, I Rebecca have to say that I wish I had I could bottle your optimism. Because you're somebody, you're because no, you have the, the the kind of optimism that's not just it's it's optimism in action. You know, you don't just sort of hope it and dream it. You actually do the work. And so, you know, you said a couple of times here, you're not trying to pat yourself on the back. It's not about patting yourself on the back. Like this is the work, right. and you're modeling it for 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 other people. And I think that's really important. Yeah, so, I just yeah, I mean, there's, there's no other way forward unless yeah. you have hope, right? That there's just no other way. Yeah. One more thing I want to say, though, in, in, in terms of doing the work and, and being uncomfortable is for anyone who's listening to this, and you and I are having this conversation, I'm probably speaking to the choir, but for anyone who may be listening to this and wondering how to reach out to their, their uh, Black friends and their friends of color, just to know that they're not okay and not everyone's going to be ready or willing to talk about it with you right now. Um, so be prepared for part of your discomfort to be not getting the reaction that you hoped you would get by reaching out. Your intentions might be really good, but, but you just got to meet people where they are. Some people just don't want to talk to anybody who's not a person of color at the moment. Some people are just sitting, steeping and processing their thoughts. You know, some people want to curl into a fetal ball, but you have to just kind of give people time and space and realize that, um, the work, it's, it's, the, the onus isn't on them to educate you. And Rebecca, I, this, I'm not talking about you. You're, 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 not, you're doing this, but the onus it's is on the people of color to educate you or even to sort of absolve you. Like it's right. just, it's, it's all, it's all at you. You, you do the work and to, to, to be an ally. Right. I, I wanted to, to say on that note, I did speak to one of my dear friends at school who is a teacher of color and she's been having nightmares all week. Yeah. that she is throwing up and can't stop. She was late to a meeting and we were talking about it and she was saying how bad she felt about it. And she said, I just overslept because um, I've been, I've not been sleeping. I've been throwing up in my dreams and I can't stop. And I looked it up and I looked up what that meant. And she said, it means you're holding something in that you have to get out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I just said, I am so sorry. You know, that, that sounds so awful. And then she went on to say, I felt like I had to apologize for my race, right? Like I'm one of the only, mm. you know, I'm one of the only black teachers at my school. I have to represent my race well. And that's another burden that's I carry. Yeah. yeah. It's another burden, you know, so just, as you say, having these conversations and knowing the truths of, of 
friends and what they're going through, it's helpful. It's, it's, we, we, we need to ask, but like you say, we need to be prepared to have people not be ready to talk and, and, and to assume that every single black friend you see right now is hurting because they are. Absolutely. They absolutely are. Yeah. And, and, and I would even venture to say that even if they're not, they are because for you to be black and not hurting at this point is a form of trauma. You know, for somebody, a, a black person to put up an all lives matter sign, it is not okay. Yeah. There's something going on there, whether they're aware of it or not. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, have been watching all this stuff unfold, um, unfortunately, from a distance with, with my dad. And I asked him the other night, I said, Dad, you know, if, you were, if we were still in Barbados now, watching all this go on, would you still want to move to America? And without a meeting, he goes, yeah. Why? Why? He goes, because this is the frontier. Like, this is where it's happening. This is, this is, this is how you get to move forward. Right. This is how we get to not have to repeat this. Right. Absolutely, I would, I would, I'd be here again. I was yeah. debating between, okay. I was debating between an I Love New York mug and my PAUMC mug, but I was, <laughs> you know, I was reflecting on it, you know, how much I still love this country and how much I still love my city. And, you know, I've, I have been here the whole time through these last three months and, and have gone, have pivoted from, you know, clapping for essential workers to taking my kids to vigil night after night after night for Black Lives Matter and, you know, and thinking how lucky we are to live in a country where we can do that, right? That's one positive spin on it. But I'm with your dad. I, you know, this is a, a place where we can use our voices and, and try to elicit change. And there's no time like the present to do that. Yeah. And I think that's why the onus is on all of us. I mean, I, I can't, in all honesty, say that I, I feel the way that my dad does. I, I vacillate so much. I, I'm so frustrated with this country, but as they say, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And when I, when I feel that sense of rage and frustration, it's only because I see what it can be. Like, it's so clear to me how much better it can be. It's just a pale shadow of what it could be if only they could just get over this gigantic original sin, this huge hump that some people are invested in keeping. And so to your point, Rebecca, like here's our moment to just bend that arc the hell towards justice, right? Yeah. Like yeah. there's people trying to keep it ramrod straight. We got to bend it. Just I know. On deck. And people like Amy Cooper, who think they're doing the right thing by donating to the Obama campaign and like, <laughs> And, you know, call themselves liberal. I mean, you know, a lot of what I've been reading is that we're the problem, you know, that, that, you know, that we support, but don't go far enough. And then, yeah, that's a whole, that was a whole nother awful. Yeah. But the more people see that, like, and thank God for social media. None of this would be possible if somebody hadn't recorded it. Thank God for iPhones. I know. I know. You know, I was thinking about social media and all this, and I'm thinking about my feed. I'm, some friends have gone completely silent in all this, mm-hmm. so that I can tell they're in one place. Mm-hmm. Some friends, like me, are full force posting things every day of this is what you can do and this is what I'm trying to do. And, and some friends are still posting pictures of their beautiful vacations and yeah. their brunch, right? And so it's a real quick assessment, right, of, of where people are in this process. If you're silent, you might be ready to get on board, right? Because you're just, you don't know what to say. But you know. do, yeah. 
do you engage do you ever engage because i'm so curious do you engage the people who are posting vacation photos like like what what do they say about it yeah so uh, well i i had a friend of mine called a bunch of people out and that's that's how i this is why i'm thinking of this she said if you're posting might have even been my cousin if you're posting pictures of your brunch and your vacation and and your happy moments you are you're not reading the room you know <laughs> you got to read the room at least yeah, yeah read the room um so yeah and but the same thing was true when when this crisis this covid crisis started i had friends you know who mm-hmm. who left new york and were posting pictures of those beautiful places they were and it was just tone deaf it was just tone deaf and yeah. um on, yeah. on that note though i mean on the, in terms of covid i there are a lot of people uh, in my circle who, once it became clear that it was disproportionately affecting black and brown people, got really nervous that this would mean a deep, sort of a, 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 that there'd be less attention and resources devoted to it. Right. Like, oh, it's, it's contained. It's, 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 it's a black and brown issue. Like, we can go back to being sad and offering thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, the fact that this has been unleashed, the, 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 protests and marches happening, you know, in the right in the midst of a pandemic, it's sort of the perfect storm because if we're lucky and things go as we pray they will, at the end of all of this, the fact that something disproportionately affects black and brown people won't be considered containing the problem. Right. It'll be a problem for all of us. Yeah. Um, so we just got to work hard to make that happen. And I would just say as we wrap up that we start with the step. Every step counts. And we start with the people who are ready to see and to hear. And we hold true to our truth, to what we know is true and right. Because you cannot unsee something. You cannot unhear it. You cannot unexperience it, right? And then it's up to each of us to choose what we will do with this truth. I know that the church and God and faith are are really important to both of you. And I'm just wondering, where do you see God in all of this? Or do you see God in all of this? (laughs) I do. I, I, I think God is the groundswell of the power that we're seeing. And as you said, Pastor Kathy, you... Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can choose to look the other way, but you can't unsee it. And I think that God, God is, God is that, God is that power. Like there's, there's a natural um, flow of energy. There's a momentum here. I think God is that momentum that, that's happening, that's, that's driving this forward. Um, I think whether or not um, we happen to use terms like God or morality, what we're talking about is a moral war and at the center of that moral war are the teachings that we we happen to be to to be to be christians and followers of 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 christ but i think it's it's true of um lots of other faiths as well where you if you truly see ourselves as equal each other's equal and as custodians of this planet and as people of faith who want to treat others as we want to be treated, then there's really only one, we, there's no both sides in it. There's only one side. And that I think is, 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 is where God is at the center of all of this. There's tons of atheists marching, 
um, in, in this protest and, and more power to them. What they're doing is, 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 the work of, is the work of God and the work of people of faith as well. I remember now what it was that, that drew me to you when you were speaking, um, Andy, from the pulpit that day. And it was your description of how you view God. I remember you sat back down, you were sitting next to me and I wrote you a note in the, <laughs> and I said, I've never heard anybody describe God the way I actually feel God. You know, you described God the way I view God. It's this energy. It's this, it's, it's what connects all of us. Right. And I think what you just said about momentum is so true, right? That these three months, there has just been this momentum that, that has caused all of us to listen. Yeah. And we can do that right now if we can now sit back and try to listen to God and what and to and to hear and take in what we need to hear right now. I think that's a form of God, and um, and that's our job right now is to listen. What is God trying to say to us right now, each individually and as a society? Absolutely. And if one person watches this and says, I want to listen, I want to listen, even if it's hard, even if I don't like what you're saying, even if I don't want to do anything, and maybe I won't for two more years, but I'm willing to listen because that's the posture for believers. That's the posture to be open and aware and to, and to look for that aha moment. We're in an aha moment. Absolutely. This thing is other. Yes. And, you know, we, we, we go through these seasons of Advent where we wait and we watch for the wonder of God. And we go through these seasons of Lent where we, you know, give up things and we turn our plate down. And, you know, it's so routine. But my goodness, here we are in this season of awe and wonder. And I truly believe that God, whatever we call God, right? The creator of the universe is calling us to listen, to not, you know, be so afraid to muster that courage to do this work. And I am hopeful. I am hopeful. I am hopeful. And I, I believe that the prayers and the, that my parents and grandparents and foreparents prayed and the tears they shed did not fall to the ground empty. It's taken too long, but nonetheless, they were still, they're still valid. And I think what I want to do in my lifetime is to make sure I've done my part. And I think that's what we, each of us should endeavor to do. So thank you. You've been wonderful. May God give us all strength and give us courage to rise to this hour and all will be well. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee with Kathy. This podcast is brought to you by Park Avenue United Methodist Church. Follow us on social media at P-A-U-M-C NYC. You can also support our ministries by donating at paumcnyc.org slash give. We hope you've enjoyed this coffee with Kathy. Until next time.